This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work, our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. We bring you role models, explore tactics and strategies, and consider the issues essential to our individual and collective success. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics from my home office as Penn continues to keep us all safe by keeping us off campus. In case you're hungry for new content as you're working from home, fresh episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. And you can catch our previously aired shows. They're all available as podcasts. Just search for Women at Work and Laura Zarrow on Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcasts, and you will find us. We'd love to know what you learned and what your questions are. So please follow us on Twitter and chime in. Our handles are at SXM Business and at Laura Zarrow. And speaking of experts in tactics and strategy, today's guest is all that and more. Capricia Penovic Marshall served as the U.S. Chief of Protocol in the Obama administration and Social Secretary for the Clinton White House. She oversaw the diplomatic details of state visits and summits alike, including the G20, the Nuclear Security Summit, APEC, and NATO. She's now the President of Global Engagement Strategies, a partner in Pine Island Capital Partners, and serves as Ambassador-in-Residence at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. And thankfully for all of us, she's also now an author, having written Protocol, The Power of Diplomacy and How to Make It Work for You, a truly engaging and also really powerful tool to help the rest of us bridge cultural divides in the pursuit of progress. So with that, Capricia, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, Laura. Really appreciate it. Oh, we are thrilled. So I want to start just at the beginning for a moment. How did the idea for the book emerge? How did, um, what inspired you to share all these things you've done with the rest of us? Well, I... Um... I have had the privilege of serving in two administrations, the Clinton administration as a special assistant to the first lady and then a White House social secretary and um, with a deputy assistant ranking. And then in the Obama administration as a chief of protocol. And there's quite a few years of, of experience and um, in engagements at the very, very top level of our government. And I, I learned so many lessons. I had refined uh, a few techniques and created a variety of really helpful tools. And when I left government, very sadly, I'll have to say, the last <laughs> was, oh, I, I think I completely saturated poor President Obama's shoulder of his jacket with my tears as I was sobbing, walking out the door. But I left because uh, it really was best for my family and particularly best for my, uh, my only son, Cole, who was 13 at the time and, and needed a bit more of mom's attention. Um, but when I left and joined then the private sector and, and had quite a bit more time to engage with, um, with friends and family, I really noticed that people were having an incredibly hard time connecting those 
critical relationships, uh, whether they were personal or more so for business, mm -hmm. um, that they were having a hard time developing them and trying to determine how should I be creating those? Um, what are the best ways about making those um, bridges of, of, of critical relationships so that um, I could advance my my opportunities, I could, I could seek out my goals, um, and, or I can just get to know someone. And I thought, I have been doing this for years for the president, for the secretary of state, for first ladies, vice presidents. I certainly can help so many individuals. And I just started putting pen to paper. And um, as, as you noted, um, it, it really does have a lot of helpful advice and supported by some fun interesting and humorous anecdotes. Absolutely. And in fact, the appendix at the end of the book um, is an amazing um, toolkit that I wish I had had much earlier in my career. But more on that as we go ahead. I want to roll back because it's not just that you give us these very helpful tips. Um, part of what the book helped me see is that there are some core principles behind protocol that are important in ways I hadn't thought about and that also relate to these questions of how we engage with each other every day at work. Um, and I want to start with the concept of etiquette. And where, um, because when I think of etiquette, I picture an old leather book that was on my mom's bookshelf um, with the how to do's of certain things that in some, some of them feel timeless, some feel no longer relevant, um, but yet still feel important in many cases. Where does etiquette relate to protocol and where is it different? And where is protocol different than etiquette? Well, etiquette, I, I think of etiquette as the uh, close cousin of, of protocol. Protocol creates the roadmap for your engagements. It, um, it sets diplomacy in motion. Um, it, it, it defines the, the path that you are going to take. It really, it prepares you and then sets you on that path. What etiquette does it, is it personally um, creates a, a mindset of, of, of preparation for any engagement. Um, you know, I, I started teaching my son at a very young age uh, the way to set a table, um, which fork and knife to use, the sort of the basics. And then from there, I advanced into, you know, how do you greet someone? How do you welcome someone to your home? How do you send a proper invitation? Um, writing a thank you note, the importance of all of that. And it was taught to me by my mother very, very early on um, for a slightly different reason. Uh, you know, my family, we, we come, I'm first generation American and, and my mother was from Mexico, my father from Croatia. And for them, um, you know, assimilating was important. Uh, belonging was important. They wanted to be American. They wanted to seem American. And they never wanted me to feel like an outsider. And one way that my mother believed um, and she served me well in this regard, was to have me go to Miss Manners at the age of four. And literally, I have still have the <laughs> Miss Manners yellow book that taught me, you know, how to set a table, how to receive someone, um, all of these various techniques that have become incredibly helpful because when you are having that, that interview at a luncheon uh, with a prospective employer, you can focus on what they're saying as opposed to 
oh gosh, do I use this or that or, or how am I supposed to behave? Those social codes of conduct are second nature to you. And so you feel very comfortable in any setting for the most part, you know, at least 98% comfortable. Um, it's always good to feel a little uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> and in the, the, the discussions, the engagement begins to free flow and, and you're not uh, diverted, you're, you're not um, distracted by your, the, the type of behavior that, should be, that you should be using in that, in that particular engagement. So, Capricia, in explaining that, I'm hearing several really important things. So, one is that some of it is about a way of being gracious and knowing how to interact with other people. Another level of it is if we both show up at the door at the same time, but we know whose role it is to open that door, we don't step over each other and bang into it, and we can just proceed with walking through the door. So some of it's about um, just some rules of the road so that we can interact a little more smoothly. Mm -hmm. But that at another level, and this speaks to your experience, and I think the, it, what it sounds like your mom's um, emphasis on teaching you formal manners early is that it's about ways of fitting in and belonging and connecting with each other um, when we are not from one another's cultural or culture or community. Is mm -hmm. that a fair way of putting it? Uh, yes, it is. And then you can extend beyond that, um, as, I, as I think you know in the book, that um, beyond the the appropriate behaviors of etiquette is, you know, understanding your cultural IQ, understanding who you are, and and what am I projecting? What are my personal presets? We all come to um, to our, our our discussions, to our engagements with some pretty defined ideas of who we are and and how we think we should be relating to others. It's knowing those and then also having the ability, the capacity to change those as we grow and develop. And, um, and so it, it really is linked to etiquette in a, in a very unique, interesting way. And I mean, in particular today, um, where we um, have quite a few challenges that we're getting through and, and trying to determine, you know, um, how, how do we become a more peaceful world and, and get along with one another? Um, the, the cultural IQ is so helpful. It's not only about understanding who you are, but it's also then having the curiosity to understand who is that other person? Who, who are those, what are those differences of the people that I'm engaging with around the world and accepting those differences um, and, and actually learning so much from those differences. So, Capricia, as you talk about this, I'm, all the stories from the book are flooding my mind. And um, you note that you yourself are first-generation American, but you also, not but, and in the course of your life, you also facilitated diplomacy at the highest levels in the world. Talk to me about how cultural IQ, yours and helping others, were important to, at that level, that's not just entertaining. Those, that's strategic relationship building that's important for world peace, national security, the economy, little things like that. <laughs> yes, it is. And, and, and that is actually the magic of protocol. I, I always refer to it a little bit as a superpower. Um, it's those micro moves, those details that will have a real major impact. Um, 
there was a, a early on in the administration, I accompanied President Obama to China. It was a state visit at the invitation of President Hu Jintao. There was a lot on the line in this visit. The relationship with China was tense, and I have to say it's, it's now regrettably gone back quite a bit. Uh, but at that time, President Obama wanted to get to know President Hu Jintao. He really wanted to make a connection. He had to make a connection with him, with this other superpower. And um, you know, all of the details of the visit were laid out. President Hu invited President Obama to a private dinner. It was at the Diotai, which is the um, which is the Chinese version of Camp David, if you will, an exquisite location right in the middle of Beijing. And at this dinner, all the staff are jammed into this back room. And, and suddenly I see my Chinese counterpart rushing towards me and very anxiously saying, oh, I'm Master Marshall, I have to ask you a question. But, you know, it's very, very urgent. And I said, yes, Ambassador Zhang. And he says, um, President Hu would like President Obama to make a noodle. And I was like, excuse me? And it wasn't on the schedule. And the Chinese, are they strictly adhere to protocol. They strictly adhere also to a firm schedule. So it's really odd that this is not on the schedule. But it was clear that this was something now that President Hu had indicated he really wanted to do. And so my counterpart explained to me you know, how they would go about doing it and going about doing it and why this was important. Well, I determined, yes, this was very important for President Obama to engage in. So I walked over to him and, and whispered in his ear, President who would like you, sir, to make a noodle? And President Obama looked up at me with this look that I would grow quite familiar with, like a, what? <laughs> but he did not say that. Um, He's too cool for that. <laughs> cool for that. But he also, this is what... This, is, this, this defines great leadership. He understood that first I was advising him and I was the expert in this area and he's going to take the advice from the expert that this was important. And then secondly, you know, he understands from his background, from you know, his, his own sense of, of curiosity and, and, and knowledge that, and, and diplomatic engagement, that, that respect for, a, for another's culture is very, very important in development of a relationship. And so he stood up, stood shoulder to shoulder with President Hu, and they bounced this little piece of dough until it extended into this incredibly long noodle, which was symbolic to the Chinese of the longevity of this relationship between China and the US. And more Americans joined and more Chinese from the delegation joined until there was Americans and Chinese shoulder to shoulder and no longer on either side of the table, engaging in this ritual and actually creating a stronger relationship. So it was both metaphorical and literal in that by being open enough to respond to the invitation, to join in something that was so foreign to your own culture, but so essential to somebody else's, was key to forging a relationship. So I want to bring this back to how this relates to those of us who are not necessarily doing this on the world stage, but that question of when is it that we go into something and we should get down to business and stick to the agenda? And when is it that we should open ourselves up for either spontaneous conversation, non-business related conversation? When are those things important and how do we know? 
Well, um, you know, oftentimes it is the, it's the goal of the, the discussion, the, 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 the type of, of the engagement that will dictate it. But my rule is that when I am, if I am the host of the event, um, I set the pace, I set the tone, I set the, the sort of the structure of that engagement. But when I'm, I am joining someone at their invitation, you really have to feel out their pace, their uh, structure, how they want this, this engagement to, to flow. Um, so when I traveled abroad, I would, I certainly adhered to those cultural customs. When I am now in business, um, various businesses have their own ethos. They have their own philosophy. They have their own methodology. And you can learn a lot about it just by entering the office space, you know, is it really buttoned up and everyone's in private offices? Is it, you know, a, a, an open workspace with cubicles? Well, we won't have that for much longer. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, you really can get the flavor of uh, that business's um, ethos by, by, by a few of the visual cues. And then you'll, you'll really understand what the pace is and what the engagement is once you sit down uh, with, your, with your host and, and begin to have that discussion. Are they getting down to business? Have they, have they invited you to have a cup of coffee? You know, leave plenty of time so that you can um, have a moment with them, get to socially know them, uh, make a connection with that person. The successful relationships I found in diplomacy are when we invest in them. In diplomacy, diplomacy was a long game. So we were looking mm -hmm. at investing in those relationships for a very, very long time. But when you invest in the relationship, it shows a certain respect to that person. It's like, I want to make this connection with you. I want to get to know you. And then you build a bond of trust and there you are. Now you're locked. And, and success is almost guaranteed at that point. Once you've built the relationship. So yes. let's talk about the early stages because I've had experiences where I have made in such embarrassing blunders in a public setting. And then I can still wake up in the middle of the night worried about them 10 years later. And I also know that there are moments where there have been people around me who something went wrong. It was not a big deal. They're probably up in the middle of the night too. But what's the difference of when the missteps are not just embarrassing to us, but where they can actually derail our attempts at diplomacy? Well, I know that most regrettably all too well. <laughs> <laughs> In the book, what I really wanted to do was, you know, of course, highlight the great achievements, but you have to talk about when um, the plan doesn't really go according to the plan. And when there are those, those blunders, and this was a big one. In um, at one of the, the UN General Assemblies, President Obama also was convening the um, uh, ASEAN leaders. And it was my job, the team's job, to make sure that we created um, the, the stage for this engagement. Uh, I was lining up all of the leaders and the team was making sure that the, that the flags of those nations were placed just behind each leader. Um, now, we were 
this is not an excuse, but an explanation. We were incredibly crammed. I mean, Secretary Clinton, President Obama, their schedules were back to back and they had us working hard every day. I mean, every hour, every hour. I think during that UN General Assembly, I was getting two to three hours of sleep a night. It was, it was really grueling. And so they had the team and I, we delegated away some of our duty and that was putting up the flags. Now we are flag experts. We actually go to flag school now. Um, well, we did that. <laughs> I required it in particularly after this occasion. Um, just as I had bid farewell to the president and he was out, he'd been announced onto the stage. Um, one of the protocol officers who were with me came frantically running to my side and she, who is never, ever, ever gets ruffled ever. She said, Capricia, we have a huge problem. I said, what, 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 what? And she said, um, the flag of the Philippines was hung inappropriately. I was stunned. I said, wait a minute. No, 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 no. It can't be. It can't be. And she says, and it gets worse. I said, oh no, how could it get worse? And she said, well, it also, in the manner in which it is hung, it indicates that the Philippines is at war. I'm like, no. <laughs> and at that moment, I'm watching the ambassador of the Philippines barreling at me. The NSC is coming at me. I was like, oh no. So I say to her immediately, we must remedy this. We have to get this flag fixed. I'll take on the rest. I went to the ambassador and made profuse apologies immediately to him, telling him that we would remedy this. Um, unbeknownst to me, which the NSC then advised me, was that President Obama was planning a pull aside with the president of the Philippines to ask a certain favor. And so this is the implications that that detail, when it doesn't go right, when it, it is, it derails you, it derailed his agenda. I mean, this was a fireable offense. And so when the president came off the stage, I had to go and face the music. And I stood in front of him and he's towering over me and I'm looking up thinking, I really like this job. And I said to him, I said, sir, I am so sorry. I did this. And um, I made my apologies, accepted full responsibility for it, told him what we did to remedy it. And he looked down at me and he said, well, Capricia, I understand that these things happen, but it's not going to happen again, is it? And I said, no, sir. And it did not. <laughs> That's flag school. And to, and I love the story for a number of reasons. One, it shares with all of us um, just how stakes, high stakes your work is and how hard everybody's working. We think wedding planning is hard. This is um, that on, you know, a, like an exponential version of it where so much is at stake, but also in your courage to own it, step up, protect your staff, go to your supervisor and say, sir, it was me. And that in what I'm gathering is his characteristic uh, compassion and clarity said, okay, but not again. And now it never happened again. So it's also, there's a lot to learn in that for all of us. So thank you. There's another story that was in the book where um, there were two parts of it. One was that the mistake was about how it was perceived publicly. And there was a benefit that happened privately. And it was when President Obama met the emperor of Japan. What yeah. happened then? So um, I, most regrettably on this trip, had taken the, had made the decision that I was not going to fly with President Obama on the full trip. I was going to go 
first to China because it was the state visit. And this was his first engagement there. The stop in Japan was to honor uh, the emperor and for them to have a, a quick discussion between the two of them. It wasn't even a bilateral meeting. It was a, it, what we call it leader to leader meeting. And at this visit, President Obama bowed. And he not only bowed to the emperor, but he bowed a little deeply. And when in doing so, um, created just a firestorm in the press because the president of the United States never bows to another leader of another country. And he was doing this out of, really out of respect. Um, the emperor- Kind of a deep intrinsic respect that he has intrinsic. And he grew up with this. You know, it was when, when he did live as a young man in, um, in Indonesia and in Jakarta, um, there was the, the custom of bowing to your elders. So this was a part of, of him. It was part of his cultural presets. And when this opportunity arose, he, he just instinctively acted um, to show respect to his elder to show respect to the emperor and um, not trying to defer his power, not, not trying to demean himself or the position of the presidency at all, um, but it did distract and it did take away from the, um, the, 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 the goals of, of that engagement in particular, and then really sort of seeped into the narrative of the rest of his trip. This was his first big foreign policy trip to the region. Um, so we, we had quite a bit uh, that we had to do to unravel this. I'll, I'll never forget that. Um, that you know, um, one of his uh, top, uh, David Axelrod, came to me right when he saw me in China, and he said, "Well, how can we explain this?" And and I said, "Well, David, I have no explanation." And he said, "Well, can we say he he dropped his keys?" And I laughed so hard. I'm like, "To his car? To his house? Like, what keys would he be dropping?" I thought it was a, a very funny, um, very funny moment. There was, as you described it in the book, I was really taken with it because it was a reminder of how the optics play externally. But there was also, I think, a silver lining to this, which was that the leader to leader meeting went exceptionally well. Mm -hmm. And to me, it was a reminder of the complexity of protocol that all of the different eyes that are watching, and while the press may have had a field day with it, it sounds like his relationship with the emperor unfolded beautifully, and that it was really a meaningful dialogue between the two of them. So while not scripted according to plan, um, it had multiple dimensions to it. It did. It did. It did go according to plan in the sense that you know, the, the, he and the emperor at this critical time in developing this relationship between the United States and Japan was very high on his foreign policy agenda. Um, he needed them as an ally, a strong ally, and the emperor was, was critical in, in creating, that, um, creating that bond. And so the two of them, you know, understanding and, and, and making that connection at this engagement was, was of the utmost importance. So 
One of the things that's embedded in the book and that we touched on earlier is the importance of protocol in creating relationships. And as you noted in one part of the book, in being perceived as a serious partner. Women have an additional challenge in that we don't have, we, we talk all the time here at Women at Work about the myriad challenges that women face in the workplace. When we want to talk particularly about that moment when you walk in the room, when you first make contact, what are the things that we should be keeping in mind so that we can be perceived as serious partners and also welcome in a mutually engaging relationship? Mm. Well, as we know all too well that women are in a constant state of negotiation. Um, the rules that apply to men when they travel the world from culture to culture, in, from business to business, even various individual relationships, um, they seem to apply the same way, not for us. And so, you know, I wanted to make sure in this chapter that I could offer as many tools that would give women the advantage that they need before they stepped into the room before they shook the the person's hand or not you know knowing having an understanding of those uh gender cultural nuances what are the differences um am i meeting with someone who is of a specific uh religious background or or has a particular uh characteristic that i should be and that i should acknowledge and know in advance so that i know how to behave um it puts you in an advantage it's oftentimes people say well why should i adhere to the way they want me to behave well um when you can be the, the objective of the first meeting is to be respectful, to be welcoming, to be civil, to be courteous. And to achieve that, having knowledge about um, their particular differences, um, the, the, the slight differentiation of, of how they want to engage, um, really puts you in an advantage. And so, uh, you know, for instance, when I traveled with Mrs. Obama to uh, Indonesia, and she and President um, Obama were, they were uh, welcomed by President Yoro Ono of, of Indonesia. This is a big trip, huge trip. It was like they were welcoming back home their favorite son. They were thrilled. I mean, it was literally like miles of red carpet were unfurled for him. And at this very, at the, the meeting of the delegations, uh, Mrs. Obama always knew she was an amazing student at this. She asked for not just one briefing, but two briefings. She was incredibly well prepared before we went on any trip. And one of the things that she really listened to that I said to her is that as a woman, we have to be careful about how we engage with men around the world. Wait for them to give you an indication of how they want to be received. Some men will not touch a woman. A woman. Some, some men will shake or will greet you in a, in a very different manner. So let them give you the cue first. And so she always gave that you know 30 second hesitation before she stepped in when she traveled abroad. And on this occasion, um, we greeted everybody, but almost the moment after this greeting occurred, there was again a huge hoo-ha over the fact that this man who uh, practices no touching between men and women in his, um, in his religion had 
had taken the hand of, of Mrs. Obama and shook it. Well, he claimed on Twitter that she forcefully grabbed his hand and, and took it with, with you know, great gusto. Well, I decided when they came to me, because they're like, what do we do? What do we do? And I said, let's go to camera. Let's find out what's, what actually happened. So we went to the video, we reviewed it, and we saw she did exactly what she was advised to do. She waited a beat. He extended his hand first and took hers and shook it. So it really was on him, but it was a, it could have been. If she had been the one that had advanced and taken his hand, it really could have put a, 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 you know, a sour note on this very, very important visit. So there are a couple of things in there that I think are important. Once again, there's the difference of knowing between two people how the dance is unfolding so that the relationship can proceed. And it seems like clearly the relationship there proceeded just fine. There's the optics, which are also incredibly important when you're looking at protocol and where the people who are engaging are not just two individuals, but they're representing countries. That's right. And that it seems like another third thing that's in here that I'd like to dive into is, um, I'm sure you have, you mentioned it, I struggled with the frustration of when do I constrain myself because I'm a woman and when do I not? And that one of the things you talk about in the book is how do you arm yourself with every possible advantage? And it sounds like if you're engaging in serious negotiations, you don't want to stake your claim on the first point of contact, that you need to establish enough of a relationship to get to the things that really matter. Am I understanding that correctly? Oh, yes, absolutely you are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, beyond the raising your own gender IQ, there are so many ways that um, you, I, I list out literally for women that they can um, navigate these murky waters for themselves. You know, we want to subvert tokenism. We don't want to be pigeonholed and we don't want to be the one that's there because we are the woman. Well, if the situation arises, um, I say to women, step into it, make yourself known, um, take full advantage of that moment, uh, but make sure that you're not the woman just to be the female in the room, because you always want to be in the room. That's another piece right. in that room. So make sure that you first can get in that room. Um, but then take the position of power. Don't sit on the sidelines. Don't take the back, um, the, the back bench seat. Take the, ta they take the seat at the table, take that center seat. If there's an opportunity to make a presentation, offer to do that. Be the first speaker, be the introducer. If you're on a, on a panel, offer, and there, there's, they're, they're offering you the moderator and that seems to be demeaning. Well, step into that role and say, you know, now I control the conversation. Now I can determine who is saying what to whom and, and, and really um, continuing uh, the, the, the issues that are important to me and reinforcing those issues. And then people take note of you. Also, promote yourself. If you are an expert in a certain area, make sure people know that. Use your social media wisely. Get on the Twitter and Instagram and, and make sure that on, on LinkedIn that people know you're an expert. And also be a megaphone for those friends of yours who are experts. Make sure that others know what they're good at so that they are invited to participate in panels. 
And you know, the, the one thing that I am a, a big advocate of is hands down, heel up. Um, we have to help one another. Uh, when women really help women come up the, the, the career ladder, um, it benefits you. It's, you create a solidarity with those other women. Um, but it's also just the right thing to do. Without a doubt. So, Capricia, in, in sharing with those, what I think are like, we, those should be bumper stickers, slogans that we put on our t-shirts. Um, they also come from some hard-earned, um, not, not just lessons, but experiences that you went through that prove how real this is and how important this is. There's a story that you tell in the book about um, your first meeting with the State Department when you came in to the Clinton White House and you were the only woman in the room. What happened? Because I suspect there are women, particularly of a younger generation, who are not going to believe that this is true. Well, there are two, there are actually two interesting stories here. One is that um, when I was in the Clinton White House, I was surprised that when I sat with myself and a counterpart, that, um, you know, when my counterpart, when my friend, a uh, female friend was in the room with me that when she said things, didn't seem to be heard. Susie would say it over and over again. And uh, John would say it, you know, repeat exactly what she said and no one heard her. And they said, great idea, John, super idea. So we went back and we, you know, made note of that to Hillary and who was first lady at the time. And she's like, well, Capricia, when you hear Susie saying something pretty good, you know, profound, interesting. Um, make sure that you reinforce it, echo it. And we did just that. We started to really repeat it. So I would say, Susie, that's such a great point. Can you repeat it again for everyone? And she would. And it would go back and forth, back and forth until people were like, oh yeah, great idea, Susie. I have said this to women all over the country and frankly, all over the world. And they all go, yes, I just thought that I wasn't speaking up. I'm like, no, it's almost like they literally just decide not to hear your voice. And so you have to reinforce those points over and over again. I was surprised then years later, when I walk into the State Department, I now have the rank of ambassador. I now have a, I'm an assistant secretary level. And I walk into a meeting and, you know, someone who has been there for quite some time, an older man, um, had said to me, oh, Madam Ambassador, we really don't need you for this meeting. Oh, this is such a waste of your time. You should go back to your office. Well, no, I, I actually put this on my calendar. I put this on my schedule and this is an issue that I want to discuss. I'm, thank you so very much, but I'll stay. And he insisted. He was like, you absolutely are not needed. You should not stay. And then I noticed I was the only woman in the room and I couldn't believe it as I was sitting there at this time in 2009, how is this possible that I am the only woman in the room? And I thought, well, you're gonna have to lift me out with a crane now. I have, <laughs> I have a tank. And boy, that, he certainly did not like that. But I thought, goodness gracious, how can it be that it's just because of your sex that you would be a, a block in moving this issue forward. And what we know, what people should know, and people should understand, and businesses are growing to know this, we have to push in our government for this to be known more, is that when you have diversity of opinion, when you have women at the table, 
better decisions are made. Better decisions and faster. Oh, yes. We've seen that most recently by Prime Minister Ardern, um, Chancellor Merkel. What they have done with their decision-making process in, during this time of the pandemic has been exemplary. They surrounded themselves with diversity of opinion. They quickly chose a strategy. They quickly implemented that strategy. And then they used empathy to communicate that strategy to their citizens so that they could could get their buy-in. They needed to have them understand why this was important. And so they, they put themselves in their position. They said, we're all in this together. I need you to do this. If we do this, we can get rid of this virus in our country as quickly as possible. And it worked. It worked. It did. And so in that, it's both an example of how when you have these diverse groups, you bring empathy and respect to the table. Look what can happen. On the other side, and I think we're going to see, um, talk about waves coming back and forth after all of the diversity that was brought into public service in the last three years, much of that has gone away, particularly at the highest levels. And so people are going to wind up with the experiences that you had of being the only woman in the room. And it sounds like for you just to stay in the room was its own feat actually contributing to the discussion was something you had to be a little patient for because you had to get your place in the dialogue. We're in a world now where that gets even harder because we're engaging in virtual meetings. We're even, we're not sitting in a radio station together. I wish we were. We're doing this via Zoom. So as women are engaging in virtual meetings, how, what advice do you have for how they can establish their presence, bring their cultural IQ to figure out how to step in and when. What are some rules of the road that we can apply so that we can at least stay pointed in the right direction? Well, one, one uh, firm uh, tool that I state throughout, no matter what situation you're in, is do your homework. Know exactly, before you click that camera on, know exactly who you are meeting. Um, know exactly what the agenda is, make sure that you're, you, you understand the schedule, um, prepare yourself appropriately. What type of meeting will this be? How do I look? Um, just, you don't want to show up to jeans and a t-shirt for, you know, a, a panel discussion on, on whatever foreign policy issue it might be. Dress the part, you know, be present as if you would in, in real life. That's what I've been trying to do is, is mimic how I would uh, behave if I were in person um, with those individuals. We're all in real life, in person versus virtual. Yes, and I have to tell all of you who don't have the pleasure of seeing Capricia's elegant, beautiful outfit, how great her hair looks, and how gorgeous the atmosphere is behind her. Um, it's, it would be no more polished were it on primetime TV. Um, and so you're setting an example right there of how you do this. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. And, uh, and, and I was about to say, background matters as well. What is, what is behind you? A messy bed, an unmade bed, you know, laundry on the floor. I know that some people are in, we're in some confined spaces, and so we are limited in what we can and cannot do in our homes. But make sure it's tidy. It, it, it definitely shows a, a, a character. Of, of, it shows a, you know, who you are. It displays who you are. Um, if you can, having something that, that also is a, a bit of a message behind you as well, something that you can refer to that people will 
uh, take note of um, in that meeting is uh, very important as well. But the moment that the camera turns on, introduce yourself. Introduce yourself in an interesting way, your background. If those people have never met you before, make sure that they now know who they are meeting and why this is important for you to be in this discussion. And that brings up an important point. I've seen in um, meetings, whether they're in person or virtual, um, the different ways that people in um, who sets the tone in the room, but the way that introductions happen. And um, particularly if you're the guest, but they have you introduce yourself first, you don't know what the norms are. And I've seen it range from the cold, here is my title to I'm the mom of a teenager and I'm worried about cooking dinner tonight and things that might actually get warm, but even a little too personal. So how do you strike the right balance of how to help yourself um, be real, be authentic, but be appropriate? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm also a big believer in practices. It practice really helps. Um, <laughs> I want to say, understanding your head, just don't let the camera flick on and, and, and be a little surprised. Oh, oh, here um, be prepared for, for how you want those uh, individuals who are on the other side in that Zoom meeting, how, the, how to receive you, and what will they walk away with. Um, that's, um, it can lead to so many other engagements and, and discussions. This is a whole new way of social networking. And, and women are not great at social networking. We're getting better at social networking. Um, the moment that we see those other 20 faces or, or however many in that Zoom discussion, you are able to make a connection with all of those individuals, but it's, it's how you make that connection. So being clear of thought and, and how you introduce yourself, what are those important points that you want to raise, um, with, and being authentic. Like you said, authenticity, it just seeps through. Um, inauthentic people, you can smell them a mile away. <laughs> okay, so with the last few minutes that we have left, I'm actually going to ask for a little personal advice. Um, I have an amazing team. I miss them terribly. It's the beginning of the new academic and fiscal year for us, and we need to do some planning. Our strategic plan from a year ago was pre-COVID. We've got some work to do and we're excited to do it. Normally, we'd go off site, we'd be in a room with a lot of whiteboards, we'd do some exercises. We can't do any of that. It, we have to you know, find a way to do this virtually. What tips can you give me for how to engage my team in a virtual retreat that won't make them hate me? <laughs> that is terrific. Well, A, I highly doubt anyone could ever hate you. Ever, ever, ever. You're oh, thank you. And wonderful. But you know, planning, you, we know this well, planning and preparation are so key to the core of protocol. Um, planning is influencing. Planning is optimistic. Planning takes all the stress out of everything that we do. So, so if we can really think ahead how to make those engagements lively and interesting. Um, uh, but while following the plan, um, it allows for also some spontaneity um, when, you know, within that planning process, it will be really successful. It's hard these days in these virtual settings, very, very hard. But several things that I have suggested um, to folks is, you know, learn new platforms. Uh, Zoom is fantastic and it's been working for quite a few folks, but um, learn a variety of different platforms because they're now, they're all racing to, to offer something different, whether it's breakout sessions or ability to have private chats, 
um, you can you can truly play with all the various platforms. Um, have a meal that's sent to your team um, if it's if they're around the country, you know, maybe by UPS or you know by Amazon. Um, they that arrives at their doorstep the day of um, or from a local restaurant. You know, if it's a like oh, a I love it or candy or something like that, you can send it. You know, via via UPS. But if you are, you know, you can call a local restaurant and have something very similar sent to, to everyone. And, um, and that is an engaging. So you're now having your lunch breakout and everyone's have, eating the same thing or something similar with one another. It's another bonding moment um, with, with each other. Um, and also gifts. Um, you know, gifts was our, one of our soft power tools food, gifts, those are huge soft power tools that we used in diplomacy to further relationships, further bonds. And um, if you can think of a, a lovely way of saying, I thank you for your time and your patience during this hard period and, and send it off. It doesn't need to be extravagant. It can ju just, just the idea that you are thinking of them with a handwritten note really goes a long way. It sounds like it's taking the same principle that we use when planning events. How do we keep people comfortable? How do we show gratitude? How do we encourage them to connect with each other in relaxed ways so that we can then dive into the heart of the stuff we want to accomplish together, but have a good time doing it? That's right. <laughs> so, Capricia, with the work you're doing now, what are your next big hopes? What are the things you're hoping to achieve next? You know, um, it is during this, this time of uncertainty that I am hopeful that I can um, help people navigate the murky waters of um, you know, our, our social codes of conduct now. Um, people are, I, I mean, constantly calling me is it appropriate to have 10 people in my backyard? Um, I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. What can I do to make them feel comfortable? How can I, how can I go back to my normal way of living, of which I have to say, this is the new norm. You know, we are, we are now advanced into a very, very different time frame. Um, so my future I see is, is really trying to use the basics from protocol, from etiquette, and, and having them apply now in this this very different time where we are we're all beset in this fog and um and give people clarity make people feel comfortable give them a little bit more certainty in their engagements and uh it's really important because when we show kindness when we when we are welcoming and respectful to one another um it makes us all just feel so so much better and after all we are all in this together Krisha, I cannot agree more or thank you more wholeheartedly. This has been fascinating, delightful, and useful. So thank you for all you've done. Thank you, Laura, for having me this afternoon. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at our handle, at SXM Business, and me, at Laura Zarrow. Many thanks to my beloved producer, Patty Hall, my sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, my at-home tech team of Jeff Greenfield and Ellie Zarrow. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work here on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everyone. Be kind to each other. When there's nothing left to hurt inside And we'll shine Yes, we'll shine
insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.